thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. On The Naked Scientists this week, the very first amphibian genome. How a colourful fish can give us an insight into evolution. Using a medical technique designed for eye disease to help spot art forgeries. And how we've still not stemmed the tide of biodiversity loss. Plus, we take a step closer to personalised medicine based on your genome. A clinical assessment appears in this week's Lancet. I'm Ben Valsler and joining me this week is Helen Scales. Thanks, Ben. Also on the way this week, we're looking at the science of global positioning systems, or GPS. Coming up, Mira will find out how GPS works and how it talks to those bossy little boxes in our cars, the satellite navigation systems. Plus, we'll find out how GPS can be tricked and the sort of problems that that may cause, as well as exploring the cosmic positioning system and why satellites themselves need to use distant quasars to find out where they are. Plus, in Kitchen Science, Dave and I get back to basics to explain how you can use a compass, a map and a few distant landmarks to find out almost exactly where you are. That's all to come on today's Naked Scientists. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Helen Scales. And I'm Ben Valsler. I'm going to kick off this week with a story about an analysis of the genome of the western clawed frog, that's Xenopus tropicalis. It was published in the journal Science this week and it marks the very first amphibian genome to be sequenced. Ufa Helston and colleagues at the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute in Walnut Creek report the finding that nearly 80% of genes associated with human diseases have their counterpart in the frog's genome, which is roughly the same number of coding genes the frog genome compared to our own. OK, so why this particular frog? Why the western clawed frog? And come to think of it, why any frog at all? Well, the western clawed frog itself is particularly interesting for a number of reasons. Firstly, being the first amphibian to be sequenced, it helps us to understand the full range of vertebrate genes. We've already got the rat, the chicken, the zebrafish and the human genome, so we're sort of filling a gap in the vertebrate family tree. Also, the world's amphibians are under threat at the moment with populations in serious decline. This genome may help us to understand some of the problems that amphibians currently face and so give us clues as to how to prevent further losses. But the western clawed frog itself is more than just an example of its class, the class amphibia. It's of particular interest to us because it's biologically very similar to its cousin, the African clawed frog, or Xenopus levis. 
The African clawed frog has been vital to our understanding of embryology since it was used for pregnancy testing back in the 1940s. It has very large, very sturdy and very easily manipulated eggs and so both it and its smaller relative, the western clawed frog, rapidly became some of the most popular organisms in embryology. OK, I'm convinced frogs are important, but what have we learned so far? Well, the frog's genome is remarkably similar to that of the chicken or to our own in its basic structure. For example, frog genes have very similar neighbours when compared with human genes around about 90% of the time. We last shared a common ancestor with frogs around 360 million years ago, but there are around 1,700 genes in the frog genome that are very similar to disease-related human genes. Frogs are known to produce their own antibiotic compounds, which helps to keep their moist skin free from infection. And we've already identified some of the genes responsible for that, which is a very nice step forward. And the researchers were very surprised to see a very large proportion of mobile genetic elements called transposons. These are elements that can move around the genome, and they account for about a third of the genome in frogs. They generally don't code for a protein like a normal gene would, but they're involved in controlling the way that the genes themselves work, including reorganising the genes in the chromosomes. It's going to take a bit more research to really work out what the implications of that are. And what's going to be the next step? What's next, really, with this? Well, it will create new ways to look at human development and disease, as well as act as a scaffolding for sequencing the larger African clawed frog genome. It will also help in the process of what's been called chromosomal archaeology, allowing us to piece together the story of vertebrate chromosomes and how they developed to give us the incredible variety of species that we see today. I love the sound of chromosomal archaeology. It sounds like a lot of fun. And it's a short hop from the frog world to the fish world. And I have news this week of a group of colourful fish living in the Caribbean that have shed light on how species evolve in the oceans. Now, the seas are brimming with thousands of species, but just how they evolved remains something of a conundrum. Now, researchers from the University of East Anglia here in the UK and Simon Fraser University in Canada have uncovered evidence suggesting that fish can separate into new species without a geographical barrier. And that's something of a rarity in the fluid underwater world. With the help of hundreds of volunteer divers spotting fish in reef surveys, which are the Reef Environmental Education Foundation. Um, the research team tracked the location of hamlet fish from the genus Hyplectrus um, that live all across the Caribbean. OK, just so I've got an idea of, of what we're talking about here, what do hamlet fish actually look like? Um, they're very cute. Um, let me uh, assure you of that. They're little fish, about 15 centimetres or six inches long, um, and they come in a variety of different colours. They tend to sit around on reefs. They're not very active they're not very fast swimming fish they sort of hang there in the water you get yellow ones blue ones and black ones um one of my favorites is called the indigo hamlet i totally fell in love with this fish the first time i dived in the caribbean it looks like it's been tie-dyed it's a deep indigo color with these white bands um wrapped around it it's it's a beautiful beautiful little fish um but previously it was thought that marine species might have evolved um during times when the sea level was lower which split populations into separate water bodies and then these subdivided populations would then go on um, to give rise to new species. But this new study, published in the journal Global Ecology and Biogeography, revealed that these hamlet fish tend to live in a series of clusters or hotspots. Now, if the species evolved in isolation, we might expect to see several hotspots for different species. They're almost like the evolutionary cauldrons of the past, you might imagine. But instead, what they found was the species live um, in more than one hotspot and that individual species um, have hotspots 
hotspots that tend to overlap. Now, that does suggest that hamlets didn't evolve separately, but in the same areas. OK, so if it's not this sort of island effect where they're separated from one another, what do we think it is that's actually causing them to become separate species? Well, that is the next big question that does need answering. And we can look towards factors like competition for food and habitat, which probably are more important at separating um, a population and then keeping it isolated so that there's no interbreeding and blurring of those species boundaries. And that's the sort of thing that researchers will now be um, looking at. But I, I think the really interesting thing about this study, partly is is the really good scientific use of data collected by amateur scuba divers um, and that the fact that these that their findings um, have provided at least part of the solution to that riddle of how some species evolved in the oceans and continue to do so today. Well, thank you very much, Helen. It's nice to know that amateurs are providing excellent value for science as well. This is a lovely story that I found this week about how you can take a technique that's developed for one thing and use it for something else to get fantastic results. A technique developed to take three-dimensional real-time images of the retina has also turned out to be very useful for detecting evidence of fraud in paintings, according to research published in the journal Accounts of Chemical Research this month. Piotr Tagowski and colleagues at Nicholas Copernicus University in Torin in Poland realised that the technique of optical coherent tomography, or OCT from here on in, should be able to image the layers of a painting, just like it does bio- layers of biological tissue in the retina. OK, so how does this work? Well, OCT can sort of be thought of as the light version of ultrasound. I don't mean that ultrasound is heavy, but I mean instead of using sound, it uses light. A beam of light, usually at near-infrared wavelengths, is sent into a tissue and the reflected light is collected. Much of the light gets scattered rather than being reflected straight back, and that doesn't produce an image. But OCT uses the scattered light to work out what the image would be very much like an ultrasound. It can produce a very high-resolution, three-dimensional, real-time image, but it doesn't actually penetrate very deeply into the tissue. And uh, and where does artwork come into all this? Well, this is the thing. Paintings are usually built up in layers, when done traditionally anyway. The very back of the painting will be the canvas itself, but an artist will usually apply a layer of adhesive to that to make sure that future layers stick properly. You then may get a few primer layers to make sure it's smooth, and you get an outline of the picture that you intend to do, various layers of coloured paints, various washes, various sort of semi-transparent glazes, and then usually a protective varnish over the top of everything. Now, clearly each layer is going to be incredibly thin, but this is where the high resolution of OCT comes into its own. Now, it's very important for conservation purposes to understand the stratigraphy of a painting. That's this layered effect. And the most common way to do it is actually to cut a sample of the painting away, embed it in resin and look at it under a microscope. OCT allows you to image all of the layers without even touching the painting, let alone cutting a bit away, down to the micrometer level. That sounds great for conservation, but um, is this going to help us with fraud as well to find out which ones are fake? Well, it looks like it is, yes. By imaging all of the layers on a painting, you can easily see where something has been painted over or added in at a later date. An example given in the paper is a painting of St Leonard, a Franciscan monk, that was painted in 1797. Now, the painting does say St Leonard on it in one corner, but here's the thing, he wasn't made a saint until 1867 so either the inscription of saint leonard or the date of 1797 must be wrong 
Now, using OCT, they could show that the layer containing the date was actually part of the deep structure of the painting, while the inscription St. Leonard lies on top of the thick coat of varnish that covers the original black background. Now, they could also identify an earlier inscription which had actually been painted over when Leonard became St. Leonard. The same technique could, of course, be used to spot less well-meaning alterations, because obviously all they wanted to do was commemorate the fact that he'd become a saint. Had they put somebody else's signature on it, that would have been a very different issue altogether. Fascinating stuff. And uh, from conservation of paintings, I'm going to hop to conservation of biodiversity and news that the world is still losing biodiversity at an alarming rate, despite world leaders promising in 2002 to cut the rate of loss by 2010. That's right, that's this year. Now, it's a stark warning um, that's been published in the journal Science this week by a huge team of international researchers. And together, they've pulled data in, from the past four decades on 31 indicators, which show us the state and the pressures on biodiversity. And the sad news is that they found no signs of improvement, but lots of signs of continued breakdown of species, populations and ecosystems, as well as these unrelenting impacts from human activities. And it's all, show, all this means is that the Convention on Biological diversity, the CBD, which we'll meet later this year, is going to fall a long way short of its intended targets. Now, there is some good news, though, um, with increases in some um, some of these factors, like increased numbers of protected areas, um, lots more commitment to tackling things like invasive species. Um, so there are, and there is also quite a lot of evidence that when there is political will and the necessary money, biodiversity loss can be reduced or reversed. Now, unfortunately, all too often in the news on this show, we're reporting on something being endangered or the loss of a species. So sh this shouldn't be a surprise to us, surely? No, that's right. Um, we really weren't actually expecting anything other than a fairly gloomy picture being painted. But I think the reason we need studies like this is really that we're bringing a lot of information together, squeezing out a very short, sharp message, which is there's no hiding from it. We are still losing biodiversity. We cannot ignore this anymore. Some people argue that we lose a lot of important detail in these sort of large-scale studies, but it's the sort of thing that will capture international attention, in particular politicians and decision-makers. So that's really what this sort of paper is about. And hopefully it will really stimulate world leaders into really getting tough on new plans for reversing these downward spirals of global biodiversity and really to help make sure that next time we stick to our promises. Well, it's certainly something to think about, isn't it? Especially at the moment, of course, thinking about policy. Now, also in the news this week, The Lancet has published a full clinical assessment of the benefits to looking at your genome to help personalise your medicine. Dr Ewan Ashley from Stanford University School of Medicine joins us now on the line. Hi, Ewan. Thanks for joining us. Haven't we been finding genes related to disease for years? What's actually new here? Well, thanks very much for having me on the show. Uh, I think this is the first time that anyone has really had a whole genome available for an individual. And the, the, ta the, the task we set ourselves was, what if a, a, a patient comes into a doctor's office with his or her whole genome? What would the physician be able to do? So we tried to integrate all the associations with genes and disease that have ever been described in a way that we could apply to this one person's genome. And is it just the disease that we can look at or can we also tell a bit about how they might respond to certain drugs? Yeah, this, this topic of, of so-called pharmacogenomics, using the genome to help try to choose a better drug and, and personalize medicine for the individual. Uh, but it can, it can do other things other than just choose the best drug. It can do that on the basis of the best effect for the drug, but also hopefully helping avoid side effects. And in the particular patient in our paper, 
Uh, he fell just short on his regular criteria for a, a recommendation of a cholesterol-lowering medication. But when we looked into his genome, we found increased genetic risk for coronary artery disease. So we moved ourselves towards recommending that. So we looked in his genome to see would he respond well to one of those cholesterol-lowering medicines, and we found variants in his genome that would suggest he would. And more than that, we actually found variants that would suggest he had a low risk of side effects. And I think this is really what personalized medicine of the future will, will begin to look like. We've had a sequence of the human genome for a little while now. Why only now are we starting to look at it from this personalized medicine perspective? Well, I think that the informatics uh, challenge has been very significant. And, of course, all the time this information is changing and we're gathering together information about new variants. This was only the fifth human genome that has ever uh, been sequenced. And really, it's only a few years ago that it cost millions of dollars. In fact, in 2001, when the first draft human genome sequence came out, it was, that project was $3 billion, um, although maybe three or 400 million were the sequencing costs. But this particular genome we looked at cost only $50,000 to sequence. And even since we did that uh, last year, the cost has fallen in half, and we believe it will continue to fall so that in the next few years it's really literally a few hundred dollars. So that sounds very promising. I'm glad to see it's getting a lot cheaper. But how do you prepare somebody for this? You're telling them an awful lot of stuff that they won't have known about themselves, about their risk for diseases. Does somebody need counselling in order to actually take all this in? Absolutely. And this is something that we, t- we took very seriously. We did provide counselling to this particular patient. I think it's a challenge really uh, in, in a quantitative way. It, it's, uh, we've always given genetic counselling to patients when we do genetic testing, but this is really on a whole different scale. They could potentially find out about hundreds or even thousands of disease risks. And we need to make sure that patients and physicians are, are going ahead in a way uh, that their eyes are open and that they understand what they might find out. This is, at the end of the day, not a cholesterol test where you might find out four or five things. You, you're, you're dealing with six billion data points and really maybe two and a half million variations uh, from a reference genome. And so there's going to be a lot of information and it's going to be a lot to take in. And I think we have to, to take that part of it very seriously. So what are the challenges for you now? What's the next step? Well, the, in the original paper with this genome, there were three authors, and they, they sequenced the genome for, for $50,000 in five days. Uh, in, if you, in the paper that just came out in The Lancet this week, there were 30 authors, and it took us months and months, uh, many, many hours of, of manual labor to comb through this genome. And I think what we'd like to be able to do is, is automate that, and many of the algorithms that we have written are, are easily and readily automated, and we've started to work on that for the next genomes that are coming forward. So the sequencing is getting very quick, but it's this analysis that we've really got to speed up. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Ewan. That was Dr Ewan Ashley from Stanford University on what could be the future of personalised medicine. If you'd like to read any more about our news stories, you can find them all at thenakedscientist.com slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and with Helen Scales. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so through Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. This week, we're looking at the science of GPS, global positioning systems. How do you find out exactly where in the world you are? Well, for kitchen science, we decided that we'd get away from all the high-tech, fancy new ways to find out your location and get back to basics. For Kitchen Science this week, Dave and I have come out for a stroll in the countryside. 
to have a look at the traditional ways to find out where we are. Now, Dave, you haven't told me very much about this route, and we're currently wandering along a footpath and getting brambles in my face. But how can you work out where you are if you can't see anything? Well, at the moment, we've got a hedge each side, and you're right, it's basically impossible to work out where we are if you can't get any information about the outside world. We're just coming to a clearing here, and now we can look out and we can see some other objects, and we can actually work out where we are roughly relative to those objects. So if we look out in the distance, you can see some radio telescopes over there. You can see Cambridge in the distance with the University Library and King's College Chapel. And there's Addenbrooke's Hospital at the other side of Cambridge. That doesn't really tell me where I am right now. It's already told you something. Just by looking, we can tell that we're maybe sort of four or five miles away from Cambridge. And that's constrained our position quite well. If you want to get a much better idea of where we are, we can use a compass and a map. Well, conveniently, we have both. Uh, We have an Ordnance Survey map of Cambridgeshire and you have a very nice-looking compass with you. How do we use these together to work out where we are? Using the compass, we can work out what direction an object is from us. And if we know what direction the object is from us, we know what direction we are from that object. So we constrain where we are on the line. In that case, let's use the compass. The radio telescopes are really obvious because they're nice and big and they didn't look too far away. Are they a good thing to base our first directions on? In general, yes. In this specific case, probably not. I happen to know that those radio telescopes are built on a railway line and they can move. So probably not ideal for finding our position. Should we start with the University Library over there? Okay, I can't see the University Library moving much over time. So we point the compass at the University Library. And what are we looking to actually find out? basically what direction the university library is in so i will just line the compass up with the university library and line the dial on the compass up with north and we can find out that relative to magnetic north it's about 39 degrees okay so the university library is at 39 degrees from us we have an os map so let's have a look and see if we can find the library on the map And very conveniently, it's actually labelled Libby. Now, maps, of course, have convenient grid lines on them that show which way is north. So can we just draw a line that is 39 degrees from that north line? And that should show us not where we are, but at least what line we lie on. That's pretty much it. There's a slight subtlety, though. Because the magnetic North Pole isn't in quite the same place as the actual North Pole of the Earth. Here in Cambridge, you have to subtract about three and a half degrees in order to be pointing in the right direction. We're actually drawing a line at 35.5 degrees rather than 39. So let's get that drawn on the map now. How do we constrain this a bit more and find out where we are? Well, if we take another direction of another object, then we constrain ourselves to another line. We must be on both of those two lines, so where the two cross should be roughly where we are, with any luck. What bearing is Addenbrooke's from us, Dave? It seems to be at about 64 degrees. So let's draw that one on now as well and see where the two lines cross. And that should be exactly where we are. So where have we come out at, Dave? Not exactly where we are, it would appear. We should be in the middle of a quarry. But I think actually it's not very bad. From having a look round and wandering down to the end of the footpath, it's probably about four or 500 metres off, which isn't bad, seeing as the things we were looking at are about 10 kilometres away. So how could we have made this a bit more accurate? 
Well, the first thing to do would obviously be to measure the angles better and generally do the whole thing more accurately. But actually, we've made a fairly fundamental error in that we've picked two objects which are very close together in angle, which means any errors in angle produce a big error in distance and position. So we should have picked two objects which were at least 90 degrees apart rather than only 20, which we actually did. Well, I guess we had to go with what we had. But is this how maps were actually made in the first place? Yes, what we've done is found out where one point where we're standing is relative to another two. So if we were actually standing on a church or something of interest and you could see two other churches, you could work out where the three churches were with respect to one another. Then you could draw another triangle to another object, a church or a trig point or something. And you can build up a whole map by this series of triangles or triangulation. Is this the same thing that mobile phones do when they use different masts to work out where you are? Yeah, that's right. The mobile phone masts have got directional antennae on them, so they can work out roughly what direction your signal's coming from. And from several different masts, you can work out roughly where you're standing. This is different from smartphones, which have GPS in them, which also use triangulation, but they do it by measuring distances in the triangle, not the angles. So there we are, a few different ways to find out exactly or roughly where you are. But now that we know where we are on this map, it's time for us to turn around and find our way home. We'll be back with more Kitchen Science very soon. In fact, Dave will be showing you how to build a hovercraft next week using stuff you might have lying around. But that simple experiment shows you how you can rely on the basic maths of a triangle to find out where you are, as long as you have a couple of landmarks you can use to get your bearings. We'll put more info online at thenakedscientists.com slash kitchen science, where you can also find loads of other experiments to try out at home. Now, this week, we're looking into the science behind the Global Positioning System, or GPS. And to find out more, we sent Mira Sintelingham out to investigate just how the system works. This week, I'm on a mission to find out how the Global Positioning System, or GPS, actually works. So my first stop is European space company EADS Astrium down in Portsmouth. And with me here is Dr Chaz Dixon, Head of Future Programmes Navigation. Let's kick things off with, what is GPS? Most people will be aware of GPS through things like their in-car sat-navs. Sitting behind that is a constellation of 24 satellites. They were created by the US military, and through the generosity of the US taxpayer, there is a civilian service released worldwide for essentially free use for the rest of the world. How does it actually work in order for the people relying on it to know where they are in the world? To understand this, we have to realise what where you are means. We don't know where we are on a map. We typically don't know what our height is either. So we have three uncertainties, our position in latitude, longitude and height. From the satellites, each of which has a precisely known location based on its ephemeris, which is a data set telling you where it is, we can take a, a ranging measurement. We now know our range from a satellite at a precisely known location. That gives us a sphere of position. If we then take measurements from two and three satellites, we now have the intercept of two and three spheres, which intercept at a single point, which is the user's derived position. Unfortunately, it's fractionally more difficult than that because the measurements are timing measurements. We have to measure our position relative to the satellite transmitted time. That means we have to make a fourth measurement to solve for our local time relative to system time. So the satellite includes data that lets us know the time of transmission. If we then measure the time of reception, speed of light being constant, then we know the distance. So four measurements gives you user position and coincidentally for most people, time as well. 
Now, as you've mentioned, GPS is a US system and Galileo is a European version which is in production at the moment and is hoped to be in operation by 2014. Now, the actual navigation components of Galileo are being made here at Astrium. That's exactly right. Galileo comprises 27 satellites baseline plus three operational spares, which means that the user will see 30 transmitting spacecraft. Here in Portsmouth, we only deal with the nav part, with the payload. The reason for the constellation is essentially to augment the GPS coverage, to make GPS and Galileo truly compatible, and therefore the problems you see with uh, the famous urban canyon, where you may lose GPS coverage, will be a thing of the past. This will hopefully result in more accuracy as well. More accuracy and, even more significantly, more availability. What's the current accuracy of GPS? The accuracy that people will see is typically five metres. Now, this ability to position yourself globally is extremely important today. How, how important would you say this technology has become? Really, it's been revolutionary in this. Obviously, the thing that many people will be familiar with is in-car sat-nav. On the back of that are commercial fleet management systems. Uh, another interesting community is aviation, immensely increasing the accuracy of positioning. And another interesting community is the survey community, who have much more demanding needs in terms of the accuracy that lets them do ultra-precise positioning for trig points, for buildings, for oil exploration, etc., that never existed in the past. Now, um, as you mentioned, the one thing that most people are commonly aware of is the in-car sat-nav. So now I'm off to see this in action and find out a bit more about how that works. I've now come down to Southampton to the headquarters of satellite navigation company Garmin to see some GPS devices in action. With me is Colin Lee, product manager here at Garmin. Colin, we're inside your car and you've got a lot of sat-nav set up inside this car. How do these actually work then in order to get us to our destination? Well, basically these are um, multi-channel receivers which uh, receive radio waves from the satellites that are orbiting us above and they all beam a signal at the same time telling them, us the position of where they are and also the delay when they come down to us. We can then determine where we are based in, in relationship with them. So now um, we're going for a drive in order to see this sat-nav in action. So where are we going? We're going to the Southampton Maritime Museum. OK, great. Let's set off then. I've never been there. Please drive to highlighted route. Okay, so now how is this working, Colin, in order to just know that we're exactly on this road and that we're heading in the right direction then towards the Maritime Museum? The satellites are beaming their position and location so we can then plot that data onto a map which is inside the unit, latitude and longitude positioning. So we take that data, we then put that data onto a map and we then show that on a graphic display so you can see where you are in relationship uh, to the satellites. Now, it's quite clear roads here, actually, um, so it looks like it will be quite a pleasant journey getting there. But if it were rush hours, say, how would the traffic predictions within these sat-navs work in order to help you find a, a quicker route home? You've got two types of uh, um, where you can deal with traffic. One of them is the live traffic that comes off of the sensors next to the road. Um, which then get uh, sent back via FM signals to the car. And the other way of doing it is you have actually data, historic data, which we can refer to so we can avoid things like roadblocks and so on. And what about if signals are suddenly lost? What could happen in order for you not to receive a GPS signal anymore? 
the signal is the same as any radio signal, um, and any radio signal can be affected by rain. It can be affected by buildings. Um, so if you're in it, like a forest where it's been raining, then it could affect your signal. Um, if you're in uh, a buildings in London or something like that, then the reflections from the buildings can cancel signals. But as soon as you come out of that area, it's only a small area normally, um, then the signals come back to normal and you're up and running. Turn left on Bugle Street. Oh, and we've reached our destination then. That didn't take very long. Arriving at Southampton Maritime Museum on right. Now, what could be coming up in the future of this technology in order to make journeys like that even smoother? We'll try to get better accuracy by using the Galileo system, which is going to be all over Europe soon. We will try to personalise satnavs more, uh, learn about more about you and your car. We'll be looking more into the environment. Uh, we'll be improving 3D technology so it makes it easy for you to see your environment around you. And by the way, the reason why I bought it to the Maritime Museum is because 100 years ago they used sextants and stars to actually navigate. Whereas today, you're in my car using a sat-nav, using satellites instead of stars. GPS certainly is changing all of our lives. I'm thinking about getting a satellite navigation system for my bicycle. Well, that was Colin Lee from Garmin, who are one of the many manufacturers of satellite navigation systems out there. And before that was Chaz Dixon from EADS Astrium, taking Mira out on tour, as well as explaining the science behind the latest in positioning and satellite navigation. Laying the facts bare. I see. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and with Helen Scales. We're looking at the science of GPS this week. Well, still to come, we'll find out how satellites like the ones we rely on for GPS need their own celestial positioning system. And we'll find out if radio signals get Doppler shifted and change pitch when you're driving in this week's Question of the Week. But now we've already heard from Mira how we can end up getting lost if we don't keep the maps in our sat-nav updated. But GPS is actually potentially susceptible to something a lot more sinister. It can actually be intentionally fooled. Professor Todd Humphreys is from the University of Texas in Austin and he joins us now. Hi, Todd. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientists. Hi, Helen. Nice to be here. Now, first of all, what are we talking about here? We're calling this spoofing of GPS. Now, what's that all about? Well, it's that the GPS signals that civilians have access to are not secure signals. And that means that they don't have any uh, encryption, authentication. So there's no way for you or me to know for sure where they originate. They might be coming from the satellites. That's the most likely scenario. But they could also, nowadays, be coming from someone who's generating counterfeit signals. So counterfeit signals is something that we should be worrying about? Is this happening already? It's not something that's happening as far as we know, except in some controlled experiments. But the incentives are building. Uh, There are places now charging road charges based on your GPS positioning, and uh, fisheries are managing fleets by GPS positioning. Uh, People are put under house arrest with GPS ankle bracelets. And so the incentives are building for some malefactor or some hacker to mislead you into thinking that you're actually in South London when you're in North London. So this sounds to me a little bit like when we had computers and we didn't yet know anything about computer viruses, almost that there's a potential for someone to come along and mess around with the GPS and potentially cause some problems. But uh, so far, we're okay, And the idea is that we should be preempting those problems. That's right. And the analogy with computers is a good one. There was a time, perhaps 20 years ago or more, when we didn't have to worry about computer security. 
but that time has passed, and now we're realizing that we must also pay attention to navigation and timing security. Think of it like the story from the Little Red Riding Hood, when the wolf, the big bad wolf, came in and devoured Little Red Riding Hood's grandmother, and then dressed in her clothes and adopted her, a, a fake voice, and it was good enough to convince Little Red Riding Hood to come into the house. And that's what we call GPS spoofing, when we impersonate or, or counterfeit these GPS signals so cleanly that you can't distinguish them from the authentic signals. And you've been doing research into how you might become the wolf, how you might actually produce these spoof signals. Can you tell us something about, about how you go about doing that and how spoofing works? Sure. Well, first of all, some justification. There were some government reports here in the U.S. warning about the possibility of spoofing attacks maybe a decade ago, but uh, there was very little information about what a sophisticated attack would look like. And so some researchers and I came to conclude that we couldn't just speculate about how to defend against an attack. We'd have to go through the exercise of building a spoofer in order to come to uh, understand more intimately the signatures left behind by attacks. So a team of us from Cornell University and, uh, and Virginia Tech looked over some early defenses that had been proposed, and we concluded they were weak. And we figured a way to circumvent almost all of them. So we took the next step and decided that we'd have to develop a sophisticated spoofer ourselves. And in truth, it only took us about three months, and we had a, a portable spoofer that could align its signals with the, uh, the authentic signals, and we've tested it against uh, iPhones and Garmin's and just, just any uh, receiver that we've tested it against, it has successfully duped into thinking that it's at some other place or some other time. What sort of range are we talking here? How far away can you dupe a GPS unit? Well, the range we've used is, uh, is close proximity. That makes it easiest. That way you don't have to figure out your relative position between you and the, uh, and the target. But you can, theoretically... Um, uh, spoof from a distance, as long as you know a three-dimensional vector between you and the target. And the sort of devices that you, you've come up with, presumably they could be sneaked onto an aeroplane perhaps and then start causing trouble from up there? Well, we don't want to get into doomsday scenarios, but that's definitely a possibility. And so we're working hard to come up with defences against spoofing so that one can uh, detect an attack, say, you can detect that the big bad wolf's pointy ears are sticking out and it doesn't look quite like grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and cause presumably you're not doing this research because you want to spoof, you want to figure out how to stop this from happening. So how do we go about detecting if this started to happen and, and what can we do to try and stop it? Well, like I said, there are signatures left behind by anything but the most sophisticated spoofers. So if uh, a, a, a juvenile attack is mounted, you can almost always tell that something's wrong. Uh, unfortunately, with the sophisticated type spoofers that we've developed, you leave behind very little clues that you're under attack. And so it turns out that only cryptographic methods are really robust against spoofing. And we're trying to develop uh, cryptographic methods to piggyback on the military signals, which are themselves encrypted. And in fact, we're trying to convince U.S. authorities and Galileo authorities to make sure that the public has access to encrypted civilian signals. OK, let's say that this does start to happen and that this, this at one point does become some sort of a threat. We have our computers and we can put, we can install antivirus software onto our computers. Are we going to be able to do eventually something similar, do you think? Can we retrofit our hand units, our, our satellite navigation systems? Or are we going to have to really start again with something new? 
you probably won't be able to retrofit existing devices. Uh, but we're developing devices, uh, software-based GPS receivers that could be retrofit, and we're developing techniques that could be employed in those receivers uh, to act as, say, antivirus software acts against computer viruses. They've actually been very effective in our tests in the laboratory. And what we can show is that while we can't prevent spoofing completely, what we can do is make it very challenging for a would-be spoofer to mount a successful attack. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. That was Todd Humphreys from the University of Texas giving us an idea about how GPS units can be duped with fake signals and leave us in the wrong position and not where we thought we were. It's very interesting stuff, isn't it, to think that this may be the future of cyber-terrorism. It's <laughs> you're, worrying. <laughs> you're listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Fowler and with Helen Scales. We've had a question from V1Js on Twitter. He wants to know if an increase in the use of GPS will mean more satellites. I don't think just more people using GPS means we need more satellites, but there are going to be more satellites anyway because we do have additions being made to GPS. Already we've heard that there's a couple of spare satellites up there but very soon we'll have a few other missions going up that will add to the body of satellites that can actually do this for us so thank you very much for the question v1js if you'd like to ask us a question on twitter just tweet with at naked scientist and we'll pick it up for you so we've heard how we rely on satellites to tell us where we are but how do the satellites themselves actually know their own location well, all satellites use a kind of cosmic positioning system. And to find out more, I spoke to Chopo Ma from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. If you want to get information from the satellites, you need to know where the satellites are. And so that applies whether it's a GPS satellite or an altimetric satellite from which you're trying to find the height of the sea surface. What options do we have? What reference frames could we possibly use for satellites? Well, the satellites can define their own reference frame if you have accurate tracking. But the reference frame of the satellites uh, is dependent on knowing their orbit. And not everything about an orbit of a satellite can be derived. So the most obvious option to me would be that we have bases on Earth, we know where they are, and we can use those to triangulate where a satellite is. Is that a viable option? Well, that's a viable option, but of course, to know where you are on the Earth, you have to know where the Earth is. <laughs> and in fact, it is a coupled problem of how to define an accurate terrestrial reference frame and an accurate celestial reference frame. And in fact, the angle between these two, which is the orientation of the Earth, has to be measured. There is no way of modeling it. So can we therefore look at the other local objects? So we look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the planets and use that as our reference frame? The sun and the planets are not necessarily the easiest things to observe. The sun because it's rather large and the planets because there are not very many of them. What has been used in the past are the stars in the sky and that served for this purpose for many centuries. So we're looking at the stars that we can see, obviously. How do we actually use them to compile a reference frame? What was necessary was to observe the stars over some period of time and relate those positions to positions on the Earth and also to look at the relative positions of stars. But the difficulty with stars 
in the modern regime is that they also move. So in addition to knowing their position, you need to know their velocities. And this takes observations over quite a long period of time. So what are our other options? What else can we use? Well, what the astronomical community decided to do in the 1980s was to go to objects which are not moving. And the simplest objects, at least conceptually, are those objects that are so far away that they actually can be considered fixed points in the sky. And so these are objects that are completely outside the Milky Way. So what are the objects we're actually looking at? The objects we are looking at now are uh, radio sources, mostly quasars, which are billions of light years away. And they are so distant that geometrically uh, you could not expect to be able to detect transfer motion, that is, motion across the sky. And how are these actually measured? We use large radio telescopes that is mostly 20 meter in diameter and we use a network of stations which basically uh, cover the globe. It is necessary to have a large network because the angular resolution with which we can measure the positions depends on the physical size of the network. If we were limited to a single radio telescope, the accuracy of the positions of quasars would not be achievable at the level we need. So essentially, this reference frame acts as a sort of GPS for things like GPS satellites. How have we improved it since we first came up with it? The extragalactic reference frame dates from the middle to late 1990s, and the way we have improved it is to make more observations, to improve the positions of the sources that we had then, and to add uh, quite a few more sources, quasars, to the list of objects for which we have good astrometric positions. How many have we got now? The total catalog whose positions are listed is about 3,000. So in the count of celestial objects, this is really a drop in the bucket. But the advantage is that the positions of these objects are known so much better than the positions of stars derived optically. And so what's the next stage for you? How are we going to make this even better? The project that the astronomical community is waiting on is a satellite project uh, called Gaia, which is scheduled to go up in 2011-2012. Uh, this satellite will be able to see the extragalactic objects, the quasars, in the optical. And the hope is that the frame can be extended to hundreds and thousands of objects because there are many more quasars that have been detected in the optical than can be used in the radio. Chopo Ma from NASA Goddard explaining how the Gaia satellite will give us lots more quasars to use as reference points in the celestial positioning system that satellites such as GPS actually rely on to know where they are. Now, 
hello to all the guys listening in Second Life. We've had loads of really good questions in from you and hopefully we'll be able to get through some of them. Pookie Amsterdam's asked a question that's really got me thinking. How popular is GPS for at-home devices like finding your car keys or finding the remote control? I have no idea. I wouldn't have thought the resolution was high enough. But if anybody does know of using GPS to find your car keys, then do please let us know. And thanks for your question, Pookie. I hope you're all enjoying the show in Second Life. This is The Naked Scientist with Helen Scales and with Ben Valsler, and we still have Todd with us. Todd, we've had some wonderful questions in. First one, and this is a great question, it's coming to us from Twitter, from somebody called David Whaley. And he asks, can divers use GPS to see whereabouts they are in the water column? Divers can't use GPS. It's because the high, high radio frequencies used for GPS, they just bounce off the surface of water. And so divers will have to resort to other means, sonar or uh, other techniques for navigating beneath the water surface. Helen, you're a regular diver. How do you find out where you are? Well, we have used uh, GPS uh, when I've been doing things like underwater surveys. And what you do is you tie the, uh, the GPS to a buoy on the surface and you drag it along behind you. Then you can download basically where you've been. You can track your path and match that up with what you were looking at when you were underwater. Oh, very interesting. Todd, coming back to you, we've had another question, this time from Second Life from Science Copperfield. He wants to know why we shouldn't use a ground-based system for GPS. Why do we need to use satellites? Well, in fact, the early systems were ground-based. There was a, a Loran system developed around the Second World War that uh, worked faithfully for many years and is still in use in some parts of the world. The trouble is that GPS enjoys great advantages over these ground-based systems. It's got, got go, uh, global coverage and its signals aren't distorted by the local topography. So it's just been a, a question of success. GPS has line-of-sight global signals. We've also had a question from MT Mimulus on Second Life, uh, echoed on Twitter as well by X-Rayman, code at UK, who, uh, X-Rayman wants to know if the Americans can just turn it off any time they like, and MT Mimulus wants to know if the US military can restrict access to certain groups of individuals. Well, it's important to recognize that the U.S. has a strong incentive to ensure that GPS is reliable, and that's because a good deal of the world economy depends critically on GPS, uh, especially for timing. So any military-initiated or U.S.-initiated denial of civilian GPS would most likely be a surgical pinpoint denial in some military area of operations. It's possible but it's very unlikely because the U.S. has such a strong incentive to make sure everybody understands GPS can be counted on. As a blanket thing, though, doesn't civilian GPS only work up to a certain altitude? Well, yes. Civilian GPS receivers are required to carry inside themselves certain checks against going too fast and going too high, so that in the case that they were strapped to some intercontinental ballistic missile, they would fail to work. So that's one way that the U.S. is trying to prevent unauthorized use of GPS for, uh, for nefarious purposes. But obviously, assuming we're not strapped to an intercontinental ballistic missile, we can still use it to find out where we are to go treasure hunting and to uh, make sure we know where we are on a map. That's right, for all of those good activities. <laughs> Thank you very much, Todd. Right, well, now it's time to join Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week. This week, if you drive towards the transmitter, do I talk a lot faster and higher? Hi, Naked Scientists. My name is Jeff. I teach at the University of Pittsburgh in the United States, and I'm a big fan of the program, as is my daughter, Sam. I thought of this while listening to the Naked Scientists in my car. We've all heard the way in which sounds change frequency as an ambulance passes us with its siren going. 
What I wonder is whether a conventional radio broadcast experiences Doppler shift when we're driving toward or away from the transmitter. Does the pitch or more likely the tempo of a pop song go up if I'm driving toward the transmitter even if I can't perceive it? I figured that the Doppler effect wouldn't affect digital broadcast, but I'd like to know about that as well. Thank you. Or when you move away, does everything sound a little slower? Okay, so I'm Professor Stafford Withington. I'm in the Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge. So I think the question is quite subtle and actually has three parts to it. Well, the first part of the question is very straightforward. Do radio waves exhibit the Doppler effect? And they certainly do. And anyone who's been caught speeding by a policeman using a microwave speed gun certainly knows uh, that that's the case. And a police speed gun uses the Doppler effect to determine uh, your speed relative to the police car. The second part of the question is if I now encode some audio information on a radio wave, does the Doppler effect get imparted onto the radio signal? That's much more subtle and needs thinking about carefully. I mean, basically the question is, let's say I have a radio program like Radio 3 playing an oboe and the oboe is playing a perfect A. If I put my radio to my ear and move towards the transmitter at high speed, do I expect to hear the oboe's note increase? And the answer is closely related to the way in which the amplitude signal is encoded onto the radio signal. And it can be done in two ways. Traditionally, amplitude modulation was used, and this is where the audio information is encoded on the radio signal by modulation of the amplitude of the radio signal. More latterly, people use frequency modulation, and there the audio signal is encoded in the form of the frequency of the transmitted wave. And it can be shown through some rather delicate arguments that in both of those cases, in fact, the audio signal does take on the Doppler effect. So in other words, you would expect the oboe's note to change by some very small amount. But how small will these differences be? The third part of the answer, however, is whether the effect is detectable And the problem is that when you derive the appropriate equations and put the numbers into the equations, what you find is that for an audio signal, the shift in frequency is exceedingly small. So even if I was to put a radio to my ear and move towards a transmitter at something like 10 meters per second, then you can show very simply that the shift in frequency of the audio signal would be of the order of thousandths of a hertz. And I'm afraid that the average radio receiver and indeed human hearing is not good enough to detect those changes, but it would be possible, in fact, quite straightforward to build an instrument which would detect that change. So the digital case is rather different again because the audio information is encoded in a very complicated way. And so that if you like the coupling between the listener and the radio wave that originally transported the information to the listener's home, that coupling is very, very is a very, very weak one. There's all sorts of electronics between those two stages in the process. And so a digital signal will not display the Doppler effect. So in analogue transmissions, the Doppler effect can potentially alter the pitch of broadcasts very, very slightly. And quite frequently, space agencies will have to account for the Doppler shifts on radio signals sent by their space probes, which are moving away from Earth so quickly. And RD added on the forum that spaceships travelling by at high speeds might need to retune their radios because of this Doppler shift. Next week, why do crocodiles all look the same? My name is Mike from Battersea in London. My question is about the stability of change with crocodiles. We learn from various sources that all birds, incredible variety of birds, came from 
a small pool of dinosaurs. And mammals apparently all came from a shrew-like creature. I just wondered why crocodiles seem to be very stable over the same sort of period. Is there something special about their DNA? Or is it just the environmental factors that keep them moulded the way that they are? Anyway, hope it is well. Thanks very much. Why haven't these reptiles changed that much over time? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or by writing on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Thanks, Diana. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. Well, we've actually had some really good responses to this one, including an email from Julian Brower, an RF engineer at Rutherford Appleton Lab in Oxford. Now, he agrees that radio waves themselves are subject to Doppler shift, but he says that the information is actually encoded in such a way that it's the relative relationships that give you the tone. As such, even if you change the frequency of the carrier, the decoded signal will still sound the same. Now, we're going to put all of these points of view and lots more on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum so you can have a look and see what you think. Diana will be back with us next week, but in the meantime, if you want to have your say, do drop us an email or write your thoughts at the forum on thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Helen. It is interesting to see that crocodiles seem to be almost immune to evolution. They haven't changed for millions of years. Looking forward to hearing the answer next week. But that's all we have for this week. Next week, Dr Chris, Dr Kat and Dave Ansell will be taking on your science questions. So do get in touch if you've got anything at all that you want the team to answer. There are lots of ways to get in touch. You can email us at chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, post a question on our Facebook page, or you can join in the discussion on our forum that's the nakedscientist.com slash forum if you want to catch up with anything we've done in the past see our experiments or follow up on any of the news stories we've covered join us online at the nakedscientist.com many thanks go this week to you and ashley todd humphreys and choho ma for joining us and to our production team mira senthalingam dave ansell sarah Custer perry tom simpkins and diana o'carroll we'll be back with more very soon The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.